Welcome to Women Rabbis Talk, a podcast where women rabbis talk with other women rabbis about being women rabbis. Yep, it's just that simple. Here we are. I'm Rabbi Emma Gottlieb. I'm here with my amazing co-host, Rabbi Marcy Bellows. We are so excited for another episode here with you, all of you, dear listeners, So lately, we've been doing our What Are We Thinking About segments with pre-written material, but we thought we would return back to a conversational style for this one because we actually were discussing this uh, just the other day and ended up saying, oh, we should really be talking about this on the podcast. So recently, there was um, an article and a response that sort of went around the communities that were part of online. We've been discussing the reaction and our thoughts on it. So Marcy, do you want to tell us a little bit about just kind of set up the subject for us? We'll try to recreate our, our conversation about it. So there was a really interesting debate going on, and it's a debate that goes on in general on many Facebook pages. So I think it's worth discussing in many different contexts, and it's the topic of multi-level marketing, MLMs for short. And just to give you, in case you're not familiar with what they are, to give you a sense of what MLMs are, it's a business model, and you're probably familiar with MLMs, I'm sure actually you are, if you've ever encountered somebody selling Avon or Mary Kay or LuLaRoe or Arbonne. Um, Multi-level marketing is really a type of pyramid scheme or pyramid selling. It's a very controversial marketing strategy, according to Wikipedia, just for ease of explanation, for the sale of products or services where the revenue of the MLM company is derived from a non-salaried workforce selling the company's products or services where the earnings of the participants are derived from a pyramid-shaped or binary compensation commission system. An MLM strategy may even, and often there are lawsuits about this, may be an illegal pyramid scheme. In multi-level marketing, the compensation plan theoretically pays out to participants only from two potential revenue streams. The first is paid out from commissions of sales made by the participants directly to their own retail customers. The second is paid out from commissions based upon the wholesale purchases made by other distributors below the participant who have recruited those other participants into the MLM. In the organizational hierarchy of MLMs, these participants are referred to as one's downline distributors. So what does that all mean? It means you have to constantly be searching for people who are going to work below you. So let's say you're working for Mary Kay and you decide that you're a distributor. You have to constantly be finding more customers, but not only customers, but people who are going to be distributors of their own so that a percentage of their work will be given to you. Otherwise, you're going to constantly be in a deficit because you're putting your own money into buying the makeup 
until people buy from you. Right. So you're not just selling the makeup, you're trying to sell people on selling the makeup. Yeah, it's, I mean, yeah, I think we have all experienced this or seen it in television shows or whatever it is. So why are we talking about this? How does this connect to rabbis and women rabbis and the conversations that have been going on in our circles? Well, uh, what I witnessed, and I believe you did too, is an interesting conversation that Jewish professionals, the women Jewish professionals, a number of whom have actually had to turn to selling MLMs. And that's a really disturbing trend. So what did you think about that when you discovered that that was happening? Right. I mean, it seemed to me that they were taking, that they were being critiqued for selling MLMs or being part of MLM schemes and were, you know, having to defend themselves. And I, my, my reaction was sort of a mixed reaction because on the one hand, I can understand the, the financial challenges that some of our colleagues face when they're not employed full time. And on the other hand, these kinds of pyramid structure organizations fall into this sort of gray area ethically and and so for clergy or Jewish professionals to be sort of have one foot in the world of being a, a moral exemplar and another foot in the world of, hey, I'm using this amazing makeup and maybe you want to try it too or whatever it is. For me, it feels like there's a, a real conflict of interest. And also potentially they could be falling into unintentionally or intentionally, I guess, an abuse of power because it's awkward enough, you know, when your friend is is selling these products and you you know you don't want to get dragged in, but also they're your friend. And it's that's awkward enough, let alone if it's, you know, your rabbi or, or another person who works in your synagogue or a leader in your Jewish community. And it's all the more sort of awkward and uncomfortable, difficult to say no. So I think for me, that's where that sort of critique comes. And also that, that empathy for, you know, I, I, my, in my first job, I was undercompensated. I've spoken about it a little bit in the past. And I know what it's like to be, to be a rabbi who isn't properly compensated. And thank God I, I didn't have to go looking for other sources of income, but had I stayed in that job, I probably would have had to, I can appreciate, you know, that struggle and, um, and how hard it is to, to balance the responsibilities of being a Jewish professional with trying to supplement financially it's it's really it's a real challenge and so you know I feel like some of the critique needs to not be just on these Jewish professionals for for choosing this way of supplementing their income but also on our Jewish institutions who feel that it's acceptable to to not pay their Jewish professionals what they're you know what they're worth or what they need to survive Right. A living wage. Yeah, absolutely. That is definitely one of the issues is that the Jewish professionals in the congregations are not making enough to to survive. That is a major issue. And then for me, I guess there's also an educational question of 
why are these intelligent, most often women, because these companies prey on women, making these choices and not realizing that they're falling into these scam organizations. And I say that, and I'm not, (laughs) there's no other way to say it. Um, their schemes and their scams and the CEOs of the companies make millions, if not billions of dollars. And most of the people all the way on the downline lose, you know, tens of thousands of dollars that they invest into the company and come out usually in the negative. And it's very sad. And they work their tachases off trying to make money. And for those of you who haven't listened to the podcast, The Dream, it's a really terrific and well-researched podcast about MLMs and uh, teaches you a lot about how these uh, multi-level marketing companies work and how they how they target women, how they make their promises of women empowerment and play on that um, that need that women have to like say, no, I am strong. I can work on my own, even in the midst of being a stay-at-home mom or that kind of thing. And yet it's been, you know, it's been a, a scam all along. And then there's also the, they play on all kinds of other insecurities like, Maybe my face, you know, maybe I need more makeup or maybe my skin isn't as beautiful as it should be or maybe my weight isn't where it should be. And so it, it, you know, it's hitting you from so many different angles. Yeah, I was just thinking also for people who are looking for community, a lot of these um, schemes are sort of set up. The initial ask is fun, right? It's like, come to my Tupperware party, right? Come try on, um, you know, let's have a makeup party, let's all work out, let's do a workout, you know, routine together, whatever it is. And it's like, you know, getting together with a bunch of other women for a girl's night. And there's, and I think for people who are struggling in any area of their life, that kind of an invitation is really enticing, right? Like if you're, if you're struggling, if you're lonely, if you're, you know, and you're looking for from camaraderie or community or, you know, new friends, then, you know, it seems really harmless and it feels good to be invited, you know, to one of these nights. And even when you know what it is, it's tempting, right? You want to, you're like, oh, well, I'll just go and have fun. I won't buy anything, you know, and the next thing you know, you're like going home with a box of stuff you don't need that now you have to figure out how to sell. And it's, yeah. And, you know, and, and I can imagine, you know, that that gets really complicated if the ask is coming from somebody that you're already in a different kind of community with mm-hmm. um, or have a different kind of relationship with, that that can really complicate it. So, um, you know, I, I think part of the reason that we wanted to share this conversation with our listeners is just to sort of acknowledge that there are all kinds of complicating um, and complicated elements of being a rabbi, not just for women, but that, you know, all sorts of of areas of life that um, we wouldn't necessarily think would impact a person's rabbinate, um, but but can, and and not just can impact a a rabbinate, but can impact it in really, you know, really serious ways. Um, And painful ways. Yeah. And painful. Yeah, absolutely. And and just to acknowledge that, you know, both both sides of it, that we really we really want to shine a light on 
the struggles that that rabbis have, the financial struggles, the the struggles of being underappreciated, the the way that that different kinds of rabbis are valued um, by different kinds of institutions. All of those are really important conversations and ones um, that we hope to keep bringing to the light. Um, and we also want to hold ourselves and our colleagues accountable as rabbis and as moral exemplars and and hoping that by continuing to push for equitable pay and all of those things that we can alleviate some of the need that can cause a rabbi to or, or a Jewish professional to sort of go go in a way that might be harmful to to themselves or to others so that's what we've been thinking about sure is Thanks, Emma. Good one. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a lot to think about. I don't, I don't feel like we've resolved anything, but I think we've um, shared lots of important things to, to think about and to keep talking about. So. Yeah. Let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. We really would. Please uh, feel free to write in or leave us a voicemail and tell us what you think. Yeah. Thanks. Got our special guest coming up next. We are so excited to welcome to the Women Rabbis Talk podcast, our wonderful colleague, Rabbi Leah Mulstein. Ordained in 2012 by Leo Beck College, Rabbi Mulstein is currently senior rabbi at the Ark Synagogue, London. She is the international chair of Artsenu, the political voice of reform, progressive, and liberal religious Zion. Rabbi Mulstein is currently working as a co-editor on the new liturgy for liberal Judaism. So welcome, welcome, welcome. What would you like us to call you today throughout our conversation and why? And what are your preferred pronouns? First of all, thanks so much for having me. I think you can just call me Leah because that's what my friends call me. And it's what my colleagues call me and seeing it's us colleagues chatting, um, Leah is absolutely fine. And my preferred pronouns are she and her. Well, terrific. So we will call you Leah throughout our conversation. And why don't you tell us how and why you chose to become a rabbi? So for me, I grew up in a family where Jewish communal life was really, really important. I when I was born, there wasn't really a progressive community in my city. Um, I was born in, in Munich in Germany. Well, actually, I wasn't born in Munich, but we grew, I grew up in Munich. Um, and there was no Jewish progressive Jewish community. So we were a bit homeless as a Jewish family in terms of community. And my parents became one of the founding members of what is now a really lovely, wonderful, medium-sized liberal synagogue in Munich. And um, so I saw them grow Jewish life and see what the potential of Jewish communal life has and thought, actually, I'd like to do this as a career. And there weren't that many alternatives to being a rabbi if you want to be a professional Jew in Europe. So um, after my chemistry degree, I decided to become a rabbi. Chemistry and rabbi. Hmm. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> to think about but mixing it, but those it careers. Works. I think it's it's 
I, I really appreciated sort of the, the logical thinking that I learned through the science degree. And I think everyone, whoever becomes a rabbi, brings their previous knowledge and their own little take and makes us all unique. So um, I, I, I never saw it as a conflict. It was a good, good basis. And for Talmud learning, it was very useful. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, I, I've had to study like physics to have some of the conversations that I've wanted to have theologically in my rabbinate. And, um, and so I'm always really appreciative of rabbis who have science in their backgrounds because I'm always a little bit jealous that I don't have more of it in mine. So that is awesome. Mm. Really cool. And maybe a little alchemy too. Ooh. Oh, yeah. yeah, so I always, I'm always like very tempted to do this performance of let's reenact the 10 plagues on the Bima. <laughs> <laughs> Turn water into blood and all these things. <gasps> I, I'm, I'm very, I've never done it because you, you know, should you totally do it. That sounds so cool. Yeah, you shouldn't really do chemistry experiments outside a chemistry lab. <laughs> <laughs> Now you could do it in a chemistry lab and just zoom it out to everyone. Absolutely. I, you know, I, until this year, nobody would have thought that would be possible. But indeed, now it's possible. I Absolutely. would buy tickets to that. That would be very cool. <laughs> Speaking of <laughs> what you might do for your synagogue, why don't you highlight some of the different positions that you have held since becoming ordained as a rabbi? So my first my first job was um, at the West London Synagogue of British Jews, which is one of the larger synagogues in the UK. And I was the fifth rabbi, uh, which was a really interesting experience. And it was it was wonderful and it was great. It's really a cathedral synagogue. But I was really kind of I was happy when I found where I am now. I we, we weren't called the Ark Synagogue when I joined the synagogue. We were called Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. We just renamed ourselves. And um, I really, this is my second full-time pulpit. And this is where I've been for now, been, yeah, more than seven years. So wow. it's, it's, but it's a really great place because I think, first of all, it's a fabulous community. Um, it's, we are fabulous um couple work couple um not my husband my husband does something else but um my fellow rabbi who was the senior rabbi there when i started has been super supportive always of me and from the start gave me lots of opportunities for growth and we've really sort of grown side by side and are now co-senior rabbis which is a great privilege and we super complement each other, so that's fantastic. And he does all the stuff that people normally assume women rabbis love doing, like do the kiddie stuff. <laughs> and I do the adult education, the difficult adult education. And he does all the pastoral stuff, and I do all the management things. So we kind of defy stereotypes quite a lot, but really complement each other with our skill sets, which is fantastic. And then the other thing that I love about my community is that they've always allowed me to take on other responsibilities outside of the community and allowed me to start. I helped establish a group, an interfaith clergy group um, that did social action work together in the UK. I was always involved with kind of the global Jewish movement. Also now with Artsenu, um, that's really a big part of my 
life. It takes up quite a bit of time and the congregation has very generously supported it and not only supported it, but are also really proud of it, which is lovely. What led to you, it it might be, I mean, I grew up in Chicago and I've always had pulpits on the East Coast. Did you ever think that you'd go back to Germany as a pulpit or did you just say, I'm going to stick in, I'm going to stay in London? Um, I I think I did consider it at some point. I think it was for me, um, a lot was to do with the job opportunities. Some of it was to do with my husband. We met while I was in rabbinical school and then got married. And he doesn't really speak German. He's American. Um, but he, you know, he could have learned. But I think for me, it was a little bit about I wanted a congregation where I really felt like I could be the rabbi that I wanted to be. I didn't, going back to my home congregation, even though I love my home congregation, would have been totally out of the question, even if they didn't have a fantastic rabbi who is already there and established and is not going anywhere. And I think I never really looked at places like Berlin because that seemed just as far away as from home as London. So easy to hop on a plane and go home to Munich that I never really considered it. And I'd come to England when I was 16. So I already did my undergraduate here in the UK. So most of my friends, I've spent basically all my adult life in England. So it seemed to make sense. And, um, you know, maybe if if ever I look for another opportunity, Um, If my synagogue gets tired of me or something, maybe I would consider going back. But for now, I quite like it. And I do the occasional visit to Germany and I try to support if they if people want support. um, And otherwise, yeah, London is really my home. That's amazing. And we do have to call attention to the fact that this is one of our few tri-continental conversations. So this is super cool. We love them. (laughs) Uh, Leah, I have a quick question just to take you back for a second. Um, When you were talking about your first position and you said you were the fifth rabbi, does that mean that they had four rabbis already and you were the fifth of five rabbis who were all working at the same time? Yes. Yes. <laughs> so so although although one of the one of the four was on maternity leave. So for most of the time, um, we only had a very short time where it was actually all five of us working at the same time. But it wow. was it was a very large team, quite hierarchical, lots of opportunities, really great um the senior rabbi was Rabbi Julia Neuberger, really great woman who gave me lots of opportunities because she wanted to also lift up women. Um, and I really appreciated that. But, you know, there's a different dynamic in a team of five than there is in a team of two. Um, yeah. So and, and it suits me. Yeah. Wow. That must have been an experience. Uh, and, and shout out to Rabbi Neuberger because I think wasn't she the the first or one of the first women rabbis in the UK? Uh, She was one of the early ones so the first um, she wasn't the first one the first woman rabbi in the UK was Rabbi Jackie Tabig who was uh, ordained in the late 70s I think 78 Um, but she was definitely she was one of the first women she's definitely the first woman rabbi to have a seat in the House of Lords Um, so, so we have a woman rabbi in the house of Lords. 
um, and has definitely done a lot for kind of women in general, but also the women's women rabbis. Mm. That is cool. I don't even really know what that means to sit on the House of Lords, but it, it it's like cool. one of our our branches of kind of legislature. Oh, so like, parliament. like parliament and then yeah. the House of Lords, which are yeah. they're not elected. They have lifelong they used to all be in he hereditary, but now you can be appointed for life. Right. Oh. And are they ever going to egalitarianize the language of the House of Lords or it's just always going to be? It's not the House of Lords and Ladies. Uh, it's not the House of Lords and Ladies, no, but the titles are they are Baron and Baronesses anyway. Uh -huh. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so um, I don't know if they're ever going to egalitarianize that. I guess it's like a title. I, I mean, it's an interesting question. Can you feminize rabbi or is it just rabbi is a title which yeah. transcends gender? Yep. We have had that conversation a few times. <laughs> We particularly wanted to talk to you, Leah, about your work with Artsenu and the topic of Zionism. So maybe if you can just tell us a little bit about that position in more detail, what you do for Artsenu, and then a little bit about your personal history with Israel and Zionism, why you were drawn to the, to the role at Artsenu. So, so Adseno is basically was formed now over 40 years ago, I think, as the political voice for the reform movement, for the global reform movement within the Zionist movement, because the World Union for Progressive Judaism has representation in the Zionist movement, but as a as an apolitical organization. And just like Israeli political parties have representation in the in the Zionist movement and have branches around the world. The reform movement realized that actually because they don't have a party that runs in the Knesset, in order to have any political voice in Israel, they needed to form an international political party. So this is how Artsena was founded. It therefore has constituents around the world, local groups that do underground work with the local Zionist federations. In the, in the US, it's called the American Zionist Movement. The, the role kind of is twofold for Artsenu. So on one hand, the, the idea was that Artsenu branches would promote Zionism in Israel in reform, progressive and liberal congregations around the world. And then on the other hand, Artsenu would promote the values of reform, liberal and progressive congregations in the state of Israel, and in particular, strengthen the reform movement in Israel. So, so in a sense, my role is a little bit covering those two aspects. On one hand, I, I try to support the activities of our local branches together with my executive, of course, I'm not the only one who, who is doing work. And I have a wonderful executive director, Dekel Khumash, who's employed to do this work every day, not like me, who's a volunteer. So, so part of it is to give provide programming for synagogues and and the movement and so on and then the other part is to to be part of the political negotiations to be the the voice partly of the voice of the diaspora of saying sometimes unfortunately reform movement in Israel is heard less than people from outside are heard and it's really advocating for our values whether that's about acceptance of progressive Judaism and religious pluralism in Israeli society 
or it's about our values, so the rights of refugees in Israel, women's rights, um, all the wonderful work that the Israel Religious Action Center is doing. Uh, in a sense, our role is, and my role is, to be kind of the political spokesperson for that and to try and form political alliances to be able to affect that. So we work very closely now with the conservative movement, for example, um, in order to promote our values together. But it's also about raising awareness with Israeli political parties that might sympathize with our point of view. So I get the pleasure every so often to sit in a room with primarily men. <laughs> Actually, most of the time, only men. It's really great that now the Israeli Labour Party has actually a woman as a party leader, because normally it's like, okay, and there's me, a woman. <laughs> This is what we look like, um, <laughs> but it is a great, but it is a great privilege to be able to advocate for our values, and then, and then I travel the world to share kind of that work. So that's kind of a little bit about the role. How do I? How did I come to it? I guess I grew up in a sort of classic Zionist family where Israel was always important, but never in an unquestioning way. Um, so we were never, Israel can do no right or wrong. My parents actually met at Amnesty International, um, so we're, we're really sort of activist kind of people. So they weren't ever going to teach us that, you know, Israel can't ever do anything wrong. Um, but Israel was very much part of our upbringing um, Israeli music was very much part of our home. Um, Israeli literature, my parents were um, adamant followers of Israeli writers coming to Munich to do literary readings. Munich actually has a very active Israeli literature scene. So I very much grew up with that. And my father was very much involved in the struggle in Germany for the rights of progressive Judaism um, in the 90s. So. I saw kind of his his political fight for recognition of progressive Judaism. I always realized, you know, this is something that is holding us back, not just that it's holding Israelis back, but is holding us back as as Jews around the world. And so I felt really like I I could make an impact. And Atzenu is a very small organization, the international branch. So it allowed young people to rise through the ranks really quickly. I did like a mentorship program with them and then they just said, oh, you know, why don't you join the board? And before I knew it, they had elected an under 40 year old. That was when I was elected, no longer <laughs> an under 40 year old woman to be the chair of the organization globally. So which wasn't really sort of, you know, before me came a retired, lovely male rabbi, which was the much more common sort of image you had. So so it also had lots of opportunity and I saw lots of opportunity to do things with that work of promoting my values, of promoting women's voices. When I started, I was the only woman on the board. We're now more than 50% women on the board. Um, and we've done really a lot of work with promoting more women into um, positions. And that was really important to me. So so sometimes it's about the big picture. Sometimes it's really about the small, like insisting on reporting on gender wage gap and boring stuff like that. But, you know, it, I, I saw it as an opportunity where I could make a difference. And I feel like I have the privilege every day of being able to make a difference. Lee, 
Julia, what are some of the challenges that you've experienced in your role at Artsenu, either personal challenges or challenges that Artsenu faces? What would you say are the, the challenging parts? And then the flip side, what have been some of the, the joys? So, 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 I mean, I think, I think I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't also enjoy the challenges and enjoy sometimes the battles. I think that's really important. Sometimes sort of my most satisfactory moments were when we really battled things. I think, I mean, I think the biggest challenge is that we have seen over the last 10, almost 20 years, a significant shift to the right in Israeli politics which is a challenge to progressive values, even lower P progressive values. I think, you know, we see we see increasing amount of racism in Israeli society, you know, that affects also the work that we do. And, you know, we saw it just this week when the Israeli Supreme Court ruled that reform and conservative converts um, who converted in Israel with the movement should be recognized for citizenship, the response of the Haredi party was to portray us as dogs. Literally compare reform Jews with dogs. You know, that's sometimes challenging when you are, when you are actually sitting around a table and you're having a discussion with people and you think you're making a completely reasonable proposal and somebody comes back with like horrible racism or misogyny or I don't even want know what one calls it when like fellow Jews call you dogs. <laughs> it's challenging and it's challenging that actually in terms of political power, our political power has decreased because the, the Knesset elections also shape Zionist politics. More and more, the left is disappearing in Israel. It'll be interesting to see what happens in just over two weeks. But so battles become more and more challenging. On the other hand, what I'm really proud of is that actually we've managed to be established relationships with our political opponents so that even though they don't share our views, many of them do respect the way that I work, even the ones who get very angry. I'd, in the last few years, it was it always fell to me to chair the voting plenary at the Zionist General Assembly, which is really it's a zoo. I mean, <laughs> you, you can't even imagine it like people yell at each other, the most horrific abuse. I, I can tame them. <laughs> I have a way of being able to tame them. And sometimes I think it is the asset that I bring that I'm, I don't look so threatening. I'm a, I'm a young woman at the front, but I also do it in a different style. So I respond for, to everyone yelling. Like I just say, okay, if you guys don't sit down, we're just not going to continue. We're just going to sit here silently and take a breath. And actually, the interesting thing is that, you know, even the political opponents who who are not always happy with what what I'm pushing, because part of the power of the chair is also that you can change the order in which you vote. So you might not get to all the resolutions. If you don't like a resolution, you just let the conversation go on and so on. Um, and I use that. So I'm not I'm, you know, in that role, I'm a politician, too. But actually, on the whole, they realize that I'm trying to be fair and that I try to give people the opportunity to voice opposing opinions as long as they're not racist or or insulting to each other on a personal level that I think it's important that we have that dialogue. Definite challenges is 
definitely the political situation. On the other hand, we have great successes every so often, like the Supreme Court ruling. And I do enjoy I do enjoy the zoo and I enjoy the fact that I can tame the zoo every so often. I like that we are respected and I'm really grateful that we've managed to build really, really strong relationships between the different organizations and that there is no competition you know when there is an issue about israel that comes up you know rabbi rick jacobs is absolutely respectful and says you know should i do be the one speaking or are you going to speak and you know i don't take these things for granted at all and we have a really very productive working relationship with rabbi gilad kariv and who is now on sabbatical because he's running for the knesset um soon to be mk gilad kariv hopefully but currently the uh, president of the israeli reform movement and with the lay leadership so and that's really it's it's a gift and it allows us to be stronger amazing uh it sounds like really exciting and rewarding work Can you talk a little bit about what's happening right now, the upcoming elections and the potential for Rabbi Kariv to be part of Knesset? Side note from After the Fact, Rabbi Gilad Kariv did win the election and is now a member of the Knesset. Okay, Emma, back to you. And the way in which that is significant and historical? So it looks extremely likely based on the polls at the moment that he will be entering the Knesset. I mean, Israeli politics is extremely volatile, so nobody is going to make any 100% predictions until the day after the election when the results are presented. But it, it is significant that Rabbi Gilad Karif, who has been for over a decade now the president and chief executive of the Israeli reform movement, is number four on the list for Avodah, for the Israeli Labour Party. And if you make it across the threshold in the elections, then you win at least four seats. So provided the catastrophic doesn't happen, Rabbi Gilad Kariv will be the first reform rabbi to enter the Knesset. And that will be very significant. It, I mean, there has been significant progress in the in the last two decades in terms of the awareness of Israeli society of the presence of reform Judaism, that it's indigenous to Israel, that it's not just Americans or other foreigners who come in. Rabbi Gilad Kariv was born in Israel, speaks like an Israeli, and it already has an impact, right? The Labour Party moved offices, and normally what would have happened is that some Orthodox rabbi would have come to put up the mezuzah. But Gilad Kariv this time, Rabbi Gilad Kariv put up the mezuzah, and Merav Michaeli, um, who is the head of the Labour Party, was able to say the brachot, because she as a woman would not have been able to do that with an Orthodox rabbi. And I think it will show more and more Israelis that you don't need to go for the default when you want to reuse religion. You don't have to go to an Orthodox rabbi who has nothing in common with you. That actually there are now, I mean, I saw it, there are, there are now over 100 Israeli women ordained as rabbis. It's incredible. There are lots of options now for Israelis, and I think it will show that much more. I think he will drive some policies that are important to progressive Judaism. But I also recognize he's not just going to be a politician who's, if he wants to have a longer political career, he's not just going to talk about religious pluralism. Mm. Um, so I hope he's going to do some other 
things to bring Israel closer to the Israel we want it to be. Yeah, that's so exciting. It's so exciting. And there are the dogs. Sorry about the dogs. Leah, you had mentioned that there were 100 women rabbis ordained in Israel. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so that's just, I, I get my figures from Rabbi Gilad Karif. He just posted on Facebook in honor of International Women's Day that there are now 100 women who are ordained as rabbis in Israel. I mean, they might not all have been ordained in Israel. I think a number of them were ordained in the States, for example, and now live. But still, it's like, it's incredible. We're no longer... I mean, there are 50 congregations. We're no longer a niche phenomenon. And I think, and the surveys show it, even 20% of Haredim who were asked had in the past year attended a life cycle event officiated by a progressive rabbi. That's amazing. Uh-huh. So, and that's all in one generation. I mean, it's it's really, you know, like when we think about like the women who were the first women ordained in Israel or the first women to go and serve as rabbis in Israel, they're still alive. They're still working for it to have grown that much in a way that we can see it. Uh, it's, it's just, it's so exciting to, to talk about and think about. I, yeah, and I think, I think in a sense in Israel, Israel presents that opportunity, right? Because everything happened in the last 70 odd years there. So, so like, it's a country that's still, like, so young that it's actually quick to reinvent itself, um, which, of course, also is why it's, in a sense, so dangerous, this right-wing shift that we see, because if, you know, it could also go really in the wrong direction, and I think civil society, but, but civil society is really strong in Israel, and they are vigilant of the dangers of that. So I think, yeah, it's, it is incredible. We have so many wonderful colleagues in Israel who are doing the most amazing work, who are really like everyday heroes, and often have it much harder than women rabbis have it outside of Israel. I spoke with my conversion class this weekend about about Israel and one of them said oh you know it's the only place where I ever felt really comfortable wearing my kippah and I said well you know it's interesting because it's the only place in the world where I ever feel uncomfortable wearing my kippah because you can overhear sort of the funny comments and stuff it doesn't stop me from wearing it but it happens it's true yeah yeah we had uh Rabbi Miri Gold uh on the podcast last season um as our Israeli uh, guest of the season, who should we have, uh, who should our next women, female-identified Israeli rabbi be? Oh, I think I would probably put Rabbi Noah Satat quite high up on the list. Um, real, real trailblazer, LGBT, openly LGBT rabbi, um, done lots of, I mean, before she became a rabbi, did a lot of work for the LGBTQ community in Israel in general, um, really important activist, but is like an absolutely incredible role model and fights literally every day for the soul of Israel. So awesome. um, she would be high up on my list, I think. Great. Well, Rabbi Noah, if you're listening, we're, uh, we're putting you on the list. We're coming for you. We're coming for you. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, Noah always jokes that she's like she says that she discovered we were we were both honored by the Women for Reform Judaism with the Women's Empowerment Award um, that we received at the same time. And she said she, she laughed terribly afterwards because she said, I've now discovered the secret weapon that we have to give your enemies of how they can strike you down. Instead of being horrible to you, they just have to be nice to you because she said, I've never I've seen you like, you know, battle people. And really, I've had like right wing people come and like threaten me with violence and with arms in the air and chairing up in the air and running towards me. And I'm like totally cool. <laughs> and she's like, as soon as they say something nice about you, you're like, oh. <laughs> um, so, so hopefully our, my political opponents are not listening to this podcast. You can take her down with a compliment. You don't need the chair. <laughs> wow. I can't even imagine what that would be like to have someone come at you with a chair and be like, chill about it. Uh, I would not be chill about it. Hi all, this is Marcy. This episode, we have a new sponsor that we're excited to share with you. My husband, Seth, in addition to owning and operating his own lawn care company, also loves playing video games online. He would love it if you would check out his YouTube or Twitch channel, Nitro6003, where he plays lots of classic Zelda A Link to the Past randomizer games. Join me in cheering him on. Again, Nitro, N-I-T-R-O, 6003 on Twitch and YouTube. Thanks so much. Speaking of political opponents, I actually want to ask you about a strange, a strange ally, which when it comes to Zionism is often the right wing Christian. And when it comes to Zionism, we have these, uh, especially in America, I don't know how much it happens in Europe. We have a lot of politicians who talk so much about how important it is to support Israel at all costs. Can you say anything about as a as a liberal Zionist who cares so passionately about Israel, what are your feelings about that segment of the population, the right wing Christian Zionists, Zionist in quotes, I have to say, that also in quotes ally? So, so it's not just an American phenomenon. Okay. I, I remember I was I do quite a lot of interfaith work also, and I was invited to this clergy dialogue with Christian ministers on Israel and I sort of went I thought nothing's gonna happen you know what it's gonna be pretty benign and it turned out to be all the evangelical right-wing Zionist Christians of like I have never been in a more scary environment I was I was so relieved that I didn't have business cards because everyone was like can I have your business card and I'm like I'm really sorry but I really didn't bring any and I was like, never want to have anything to do with these people again. I mean, I think there's two, for me, there's two things about it. First of all, I, I call them jokingly the eschatological anti-Semites. I mean, in the end, they only believe in Zionism because they think at the end of day, this is, you know, we're all going to either go up in flames or become Christians or whatever, but we all need to be in Israel 
in order for that to happen. We being the so, Jews. Yeah, the Jews. So yeah. the Jews, the only reason they want the Jews in Israel is it's part of their eschatological vision of the end of days of, you know, in the apocalypse, we all get become Christians or get burned in eternal fire. So ultimately, I think they are really, I don't think any of them want me personally extinguished, but in a sense, they do believe in the in extinguishing Judaism at the end of day. So I think that's one really problematic aspect of it. I think the other problematic aspect of it is that ultimately, I don't think it will ever help you to promote your values, to work together with people who very clearly do not share your values just because they say we support Israel. I don't want an Israel that reflects the political value vision. My Zionism is not for an Israel that reflects the political values of the Christian right. I don't want an Israel where abortion would be illegal. I don't want an Israel where, you know, it's not even anything to do with Israel. It's like, I don't want a xenophobic Israel. That's not, for me, what Zionism today is, if I have to say it in kind of a one sentence thing, is it's still working on this vision that we can be a model state, that creating a Jewish state would be a model state, not just any state. And yes, we have, you know, double standards, but yes, we want to see our values reflected there. And I understand that, I can in a sense understand that right-wing Zionists might consider right-wing Christians to be their, their good allies because they maybe do share some of those values. But I don't recognize any of my values in, in them. And I think it's dangerous and you should never take money from people who you think are dangerous in the end it's not gonna be safe that is good advice you just gave a really beautiful and succinct definition of what zionism is to you can you tell our listeners can you can you give us the bullet points of what is progressive zionism or liberal zionism the zionism that we're talking about when we're talking about what artsy new represents and and the platform from which many but not all progressive rabbis are talking about Israel and can you can you teach us a little bit about what what is progressive Zionism at, compared to other kinds of Zionism um so I think I think that the interesting thing is there's like people always sort of think of Zionism as if that's ever been a thing I mean Zionism is a in a sense it is the political movement of the Jewish people to a sovereign state, which just like the political movement um, to a sovereign state in the United States or in the UK or in Germany um, has lots of political facets, um, Zionism has lots of political facets. So for me, liberal or progressive Zionism is about saying, um, if we say Zionism is about creating a model state, is about saying, yes, we are also we are a religion, but we are also a people that wants to try the experiment of what does it mean to run a country in accordance with your religious values. Then we need to bring our religious values to the table. And so for me, it's really about saying, actually, liberal Zionism has to be a Zionism where you do not need to leave any of your values at the door. Just like, because I think that's what for us why we are not in orthodox synagogues, right? Because we don't like the idea that we should leave our 
Western secular values suddenly at the door when we step into the synagogue. And and I think the, so the same must be true for Zionism. It, it, for liberal Zionism, it cannot be that there, that there is a conflict between our liberal values. Of course it can be that we see an Israel that doesn't yet live up to these, but that means that our Zionism should say we should work at it to make sure we can achieve and see those values reflected in Israel. And I think the, the reality is if we give up on the project, the only thing it will lead to is to ensure that for sure it will not reflect our values. For sure Israel will reflect the values of the people who invest in it. And so I often speak with people and I say, you know, during the Oslo years when it was really the heyday of the Israeli left, do you think the right wing just sat there weeping and saying, this is not our Israel and we feel so disenfranchised and we should now just focus on you know, nurturing Jewish life in the US or in Germany or in the UK or in South Africa? No, they organized. They, they said, we're going to get lots of money together <laughs> and we're going to invest. And we're, you know, eventually the right wing shift will come. And sadly, they were right. I think what we've seen a little bit in the last 10 years is that the left wing just sort of went like, oh no, and gave up a bit. <laughs> um, and I think, so every time one of my liberal values clashes with something I see in Israel, I think I need to double down. That's a really, really powerful way of putting it. Thank you so much. I feel like we've learned already so much from you. And... Yeah. I know we get asked about liberal Zionism all the time as if that's somehow an oxymoron, that that Zionism, it, there's only one Zionism. And if you don't follow it, you you can't be a Zionist, you know, and we've had that challenged a lot lately, especially when it comes to intersectionality. And so thank you for helping us define it in such a different way. It's really been so helpful. So anyone who is interested in anything else can just find us on our website, www.artseno.org. So and then um, and also find us on YouTube. We have lots of really fantastic content on YouTube that you can watch on Catch Up. So it's a really interesting discussions, Zionism and Black Lives Matters, but all sorts of really great content. We have a YouTube channel, at YouTube Artseno channel, um, if you just search. <laughs> Hey y'all, it's Marcy, and I am excited to tell you all about the new merch that we have available for you to buy to support us as we work to make our show more accessible and inclusive. We want to create transcripts as well as closed caption videos of all of our episodes. And so to support us, you can go and check out all of our really awesome and cute merch at bonfire.com slash women dash rabbis dash talk dash swag and check it out and support us now thanks what's so interesting is it's beshert that you got this question because you kind of already answered it in terms of the roles that you and your co-rabbi take on in your synagogue so maybe it'll enable us to discuss how you split up your roles so it's an anonymous question that came in uh and it it asks do you ever feel pigeonholed 
into specific roles or portfolios because you are a woman. Like you are expected to only perform certain tasks around the synagogue or at your organization. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you made sure to figure out how to defy those gender expectations. So I think there are, like, of course, there are gender expectations in the for women rabbis just as much as there are for women in general and just as much as they are there are for men um i think i think my my i only have sisters so my dad basically had, like raised his kids to sort of be all think you know we can be anything and i don't think we ever questioned that in any way so i think i never really even when i was a chemist i remember a moment i i i was at a chemistry conference and um, I was an, a graduate student at the time and a big professor gave a talk and I had a question. So I put up my hand and I asked a question. And I remember afterwards, lots of people coming to me and saying like, wow, how brave I was that I asked a question. And I was like, I wasn't brave. I had a question. It was a totally reasonable question. He gave a good answer. There's nothing brave to it, but it like sh showed me very clearly that they expected me to be scared of putting my hand up, right? And I don't think they would have asked me if I'd been a man, you know, wow, how brave that you put your hand up and asked a question. So so I think often I, I never, and I always, I think when I, look, when I looked for jobs, I kind of looked for things that fit my portfolio and I've never been the sort of very sit on the floor and play with the kids kind of rabbi. I mean, I, I actually love our touch about service and I love leading, co-leading it with my colleague, but like I'm the boring one. Like, you know, you always need sort of the hyperactive and the like quiet one. Like I'm definitely the quiet one. <laughs> um, it worked really well as a pair, but <laughs> I'm just not, I'm not that personality. And I think, I think one of the reasons was really happy when I got the job that I got was that I also, I saw that they wanted to hire me not for the pigeonhole stuff. And I mean, the way it works in terms of how we divide our portfolios is that we work very collaboratively. So every 12 to 18 months, we sit down together and we say, you know, who's going to take charge f of which portfolio? You currently have this portfolio. And then whoever's in charge of the portfolio basically manages the other person to do the work in that portfolio. So it doesn't mean we don't do any work that isn't within our portfolio, but it's like if I'm in charge of education, I will say to my colleague, okay, I want you to do every week Parashat HaShavua. And, you know, unless there's an objection to it, he will say, sure, I'll do a Parashat HaShavua every week. And likewise with pastoral stuff, it's like he will say to me, oh, you know, can you look after these people? Or I think this is one that is better for you but I don't necessarily have to like think it through because he's in charge and we do reallocate things. I mean, he loves the pastoral stuff and he loves the small children. So he tends to hold on to them because he loves them. But we do like to mix it up a little bit. And I think our congregation actually see how well we work together and therefore have always accepted it. And we're really good allies for each other of not allowing us to be undermined by it and speaking up uh, for each other 
So, like, for example, he, he's not seen as the most technically, technologically savvy person because Leah manages all the tech and stuff. <laughs> Actually, I often say, you know what? He, he runs his own shivers. <laughs> you know, don't, don't put him down like that. He's quite capable. Yeah, he's not, he's not as good at it as I am, but it's, <laughs> not because it's because it's not his interest area. <laughs> It's like I'm not as good as he is on the pastoral stuff. I, I think we have a really good relationship about being able to say in some areas you are better than me at doing this. We are really happy that the other person is better at it than, than we ourselves are because it means we don't have to do the stuff that is a bit beyond our comfort zone. Or sometimes we can push each other. But, you know, you're kind of carried in that. So, yeah, I think that's, you know, it, you couldn't have it any better way. You really couldn't. I, I, I'm like in rabbinic heaven. So That's so great. It's so great when you're on a team and you feel that balance. Marcy, did you have anything you wanted to add? I think we definitely are still battling that issue. You know, when a non-affiliated family will call a funeral home and say, I only want a female rabbi because there's an there's an expectation of what a female rabbi will do or be. And we have to be allies for each other by saying, you know, a male or female or non-binary colleague will will be just as wonderful as any other colleague. And we have to support each other as we all have an opportunity to be wonderful, caring colleagues. And when we're at multi-clergy congregations, we have to also do our best to support each other. When there are opportunities to divide up portfolios according to skill sets and even just things we like and, you know, prefer, then that's the way you do it. You know, what about you, Emma? It's interesting because I worked first as a solo rabbi where I wasn't pigeonholed because I was doing everything. Um, and then on my team, I am the only woman. Um, so I'm very careful not to be not to be pigeonholed. We have also a, a non-hierarchical rabbinic team. So we're meant to be leading from our passions and our areas of strength which is lovely. Um, but there definitely are times where something will come up and we'll be saying, you know, who's going to take this on? Who's going to do this this piece? And sometimes I will intentionally not volunteer to do something because it's a traditionally, you know, the, the perception is that it would be done by a woman. Yeah. I think, I think I just sort of, I mean, for me also, like for it, it's, it's less so in my congregational work, but like in Artsenu, like I would never volunteer to take minutes at a meeting out of principle because I'm often like the only woman and I can take perfectly fine minutes. But like there is always that is one of those things that is like often a thing. So I'm, I'm like, yeah, don't do the minutes and I don't bring the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> no coffee for you. <laughs> Someone else get it. <laughs> now that women rabbis talk now has swag that's right we have swag we are so excited to finally be able to invite you to purchase your own women rabbis talk t-shirts long sleeve tees and they come in a variety of colors 
and fabric combinations for your wearing pleasure. If you would like your own Women Rabbis Talk t-shirt, please check out um, our website, anchor.fm slash Women Rabbis Talk podcast. The other way you can find our t-shirts is by going to bonfire.com and searching in the campaigns for Women Rabbis Talk. That will bring you up to our t-shirts. Where does the money from our t-shirts go, you might be wondering? Well, we have been trying to up our game and broaden our reach and be more inclusive by making sure that our podcasts can be accessed by those who might not be able to hear as well as others. We're trying to do closed captioning on YouTube and looking into other ways of broadening our reach. The um, downside or flip side to that is that we um, are both full-time employed rabbis and we're going to need some help. We're looking to perhaps one day hire an intern or be able to pay for some admin support or even to just uh, purchase the software that we need to make these things happen. So all of the proceeds from your um, purchasing of our t-shirts will go towards that important work. We are so grateful for your being on this podcast journey with us. And we can't wait to see you wearing your swag. Once you've got a t-shirt, please post it on Instagram and tag us or on Facebook and tag us so that we can see you representing Women Rabbis Talk. you've heard our podcast so you know that we take our guests every episode through our questionnaire Maher and it is your turn are you ready are you ready I am ready (laughs) (laughs) is this a race (laughs) it's not a race but they're meant to be short short quick answers if you can it's not always easy it's Maher-ish Maher-ish yeah (laughs) So, Leah, who was your first woman rabbi, either in your home synagogue or that you were first aware of? So, probably Rabbi Giza Ederberg, who taught me Hebrew before she became a rabbi. She she was in my congregation, and then she was ordained at Schechter, an Israel conservative rabbi, and is now a conservative rabbi in Berlin. Wow. Tell us about a woman who inspires you, Jewish or otherwise. Oh, it's it's really, it's like... It's, I find these who inspires you questions really challenging because it depends on which aspect of my life. But I, I, think, I think I'm going to mention Rabbi Noah Satat again, um, who I recommended for this podcast, because she's really what I absolutely love the most about her is that she's, she's really a warrior for social justice. She is this like wonderful sweet warm and cuddly person (laughs) actually who is really not and she doesn't seem like a warrior like she doesn't look like a warrior she makes no pretense to try to pretend to look like one but wow she's fierce and powerful and amazing so i'm gonna for today i'm gonna name rabbi noah satat (laughs) amazing fill in the blank being a woman rabbi is or women rabbis are um, so I'm going to choose being a woman rabbi is a privilege. Lovely. 
I agree. What do you think would surprise people to learn about women rabbis? That they exist. <laughs> yeah, some people. I think I think still some people. Basically, everything about the woman rabbi is still kind of a surprise to them. <laughs> My head went into all sorts of directions when you said that. <laughs> favorite favorite Jewish character from a book, movie, or TV show? So I think I'm going to choose Frankie from Grace and Frankie because she's just the most awesome. <laughs> kind of quirky and and what I love about kind of her as a Jewish character is that it's not it's not all about the Jewishness and yet everything about it is in a sense so Jewish and it's just the most wonderful show about graceful aging that so I'm gonna pick Frankie that's a good one I don't think anyone's chosen her yet so that's awesome what is a Jewish text teaching or value that inspires you or informs your life so for this one, I'm going to choose Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where it says, People tell you what is good, but what does the Eternal One require of you? Only to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. I used to have that over my computer screen. Now I have a window because I'm home officing, um, so no longer over my computer screen. But I think that's for me, that's like, what's it all about? Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And uh, each episode, Marcy and I begin talking about what we're thinking about. So, Leah, what are you thinking about these days? What am I thinking? So I'm reading at the moment um, a book about anti-Semitism amongst progressives. And it's, a, it's called a book, Jews Don't Count, about how Jews are often overlooked when there is discussions around racism and that Jews suffer kind of the racism that then is sort of seen as a lesser form of racism. It's 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 very it's by David Badil, who's a, a comedian, British comedian. It's very interesting for me because, on one hand, it sounds it rings so true because it's very much the, the what happens in progressive England. On the other hand, it's so alien because it's definitely not what it's like in Germany. Everyone in Germany really is quite aware that Jews are a minority that are oppressed and. It's a little bit incredible to me to think that 80 years after they, or not even 80 years after um, Europe tried to wipe out, or in Europe someone tried to wipe out all the Jews, it would be seen that we are maybe too privileged to be counted as an ethnic minority. So that's what I'm currently thinking about. It's not the most cheerful topic, unfortunately. Uh, no, but it sounds really interesting. And I'm sure we've all just added that book to our list of books to read. Thanks, Leah. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, Rabbi Leah Morstein, it is such a joy to have had you on our show today and really a pleasure to learn from you and to learn more about liberal Zionism throughout the world and how we can get more involved in it in Israel. And so you mentioned the Artsenu website. And if people want to get in touch with you more, are there any other places that they can find? you if they want to ask you questions online absolutely um i'm on facebook if you just search for my name you'll find me on facebook i'm on instagram l Mühlstein with a ue um i have I, I don't do very many instagram posts but i do every week a post elevating jewish women's voices of a poet 
um, as a commentary on this week's Torah portion. And otherwise, via my synagogue's website, arcsynagogue.org, they can get in touch with me by email. Awesome. Awesome. Totally awesome. It is just such a joy. Thank you so much. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in to Women Rabbis Talk, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. You're always welcome to be in touch with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash women rabbis talk. And on Instagram at women rabbis podcast. Or Twitter at women rabbis talk. Or you can email us at women rabbis podcast. That's women rabbis podcast at gmail.com. Or our brand new website, womenrabbistalk.wordpress.com. And you can show your support for our podcast all over the world by picking up some very cool swag at our online merch store at www.bonfire.com slash store slash women dash rabbis dash talk dash swag. In addition to shirts, totes, mugs, and football jerseys, we just launched some awesome tie-dyes. We welcome your feedback at all times, and we're always looking for new Ask the Rabbi questions. Thank you so much to John Claude Haynes of C. Robin Tech and Seth Lindenman for their tech support. Our music is Bowie Kala by Aviva Chernick and Jaffa Road. Be sure to check them out for more amazing music. We are grateful to be hosted for free by Anchor.fm, which also makes our podcast available anywhere you like to listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share so that others can find us and share in the magic of women rabbis. All podcast editing is done ourselves. So thank you, Emma. Thank you, Mercy. And we're out. Amazing.